Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. This is Charles Marshall, and I'm in for Neil Garfield, and this is actually the debut episode of what we're calling the West Coast Foreclosure Show, and in this episode and in future episodes, we will be discussing cases and matters that go well beyond California in many cases. In fact, today's topic is going to involve a property in Indiana, and a lot of uh, matters that broadly and narrowly relate to that. Now, in this episode, Eric Maines is joining me to discuss strategies that entail using the Freedom of Information Act, and it's using FOIA, as it's called, to obtain information outside of traditional discovery methods and getting this information by by government institutions, basically, particularly the U.S. government, but it can also be applied to other government institutions. And today is August 3rd, 2017. Again, this is Attorney Charles Marshall. I'm broadcasting live from Las Vegas, Nevada, by way of my usual Southern California haunts. In the future, I will be hosting the West Coast Foreclosure Show on the first and third Thursday of each month with a focus on West Coast developments. But those West Coast developments will often involve not just non-judicial foreclosure matters elsewhere, but even judicial foreclosure areas back east, the Midwest, the South, because many of these developments will greatly impact and help West Coast borrowers as well. Uh, Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show on the second and last Thursday of the month. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And as always, is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on our blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Uh, Eric Maines, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome, Charles. How are you doing? Uh, excellent. It's really good to have you on, and this is a topic that needs 
much uh, much explication. I mean, this is something that borrowers need to hear about. Uh, Eric is a former FDIC team leader who has come to understand through his own deep experience bank fraud and the difficulty of obtaining the information needed to win these cases against the banks. Now, Eric, I know you've you've developed this pretty deep understanding of how you can use FOIA to advance these types of cases on behalf of borrowers. Uh, why don't you just describe just a little bit your background with the FDIC and how that's helped in your investigations that has led that have led you to where you are now? Sure. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, some of the listeners may have read about my story through uh, Dave Dyan, who did a uh, article on me in Vice Magazine. But uh, I've been in banking for about 10 years from 2000 to 2010 uh, with various regional banks before I joined the FDIC in uh, 2010. And at that time, I worked out of the Division of Resolutions and Receiverships, which was in Dallas, Texas. And we were responsible for the uh, receivership of various banks that were going under and of uh, finding new acquiring institutions to take over those banks and uh, get get the failing institutions through the receivership process. Uh, and as I said, I started that position in 2010. Now, the uh, Division of Resolutions and Receiverships, ironically, was also responsible for the uh, receivership of Washington Mutual Bank, who was uh, the uh, originator of the my own loan in uh, my case and basically I, as a background uh, to kind of understand what happened in, in my situation and uh, what I've been using as a method to try to attack the uh, false assignments and other false loan documents in my case when I was uh, when I tried to modify my loan which again was a Washington Mutual loan Back in around 2009, I kept having the experience that a lot of homeowners did at that time where I got a refusal uh, to modify the loan based on the fact that they kept saying they lost all my loan documentation. So I would uh, I submitted uh, documentation to try to modify my loan over three times. I kept saying, well, we lost documentation. We lost your documentation. We lost your documentation. I'm like, well... That's awful strange. Being in banking, uh, you don't tend to lose documentation that much. That's why I started digging into my loan and finding out that it had been securitized and they were claiming that it was owned by a trust. Long and short of the matter is I went through state court and I argued that they didn't have the proper chain of title to prove that the trust who claimed that they owned my loan actually owned it or had standing to foreclose. And this went to the state court roughly from 2010 uh, through 2013. Uh, they actually got a judgment of foreclosure at the trial court. Uh, and I argued through the appellate court that this was an incorrect ruling because they hadn't proven proper standing, again, proper chain of title. And it was only when I got up to the Indiana Supreme Court and was awaiting a ruling uh, in 2013 
that I found out that uh, some of my documents had actually been produced by LTS Black Knight, and they were the subject of the uh, infamous 60 Minutes episode that uh, involved Lindsay's Poniac and talked about the Linda Green DOCX signing, which was LTS at the time, and all the robo-signing that had been done, which is just a nice euphemism for forgery in most cases. And... uh, yeah, and, and upon finding out that LPS Black Knight was in, I had only named Chase Bank as a servicer and the listed WAMU Trust uh, in my state case, and upon finding out that LPS Black Knight was involved and had produced the assignment in my case, and that, in fact, the attorneys, Nelson and Frankenberger, who is a uh, large Indiana foreclosure mill that's infamous in my uh, particular region, had withheld material parties to my case, and in fact, in violation of a 2013 uh, multi-state consent judgment, which involved all the attorney generals of the uh, various states, uh, I filed a federal court case against not only the uh, Chase Bank and the trust, but against Nelson and Frankenberger against LPS Black Knight for for violating the terms of the consent judgment and using robo-signed documents. Um, um, Eric, before we get into that, I just want to give a little bit of backdrop to make sure the borrowers understand kind of both the big and little picture here. Um, sure. Indiana, it's it's a state that still has a significant number of foreclosures. Um, And I know we have listeners there. A lot of our listeners are from kind of the four corners of the country. And then we do have a lot in the Midwest as well. Um, Explain to borrowers. I mean, is Indiana typically handling these foreclosures in a judicial forum where the chases of the world would be suing the borrowers or are plaintiffs typically bringing lawsuits in Indiana in a non-judicial capacity where they're suing no. the service of the lenders, you know, to stop a non-judicial foreclosure or does Indiana handle these matters judicially typically? No, this is through a judicial process. So this would be handled through the uh, banks like Chase and the servicers. So we are a judicial foreclosure state. However, so you were sued um, in other words. You were sued at some point. Is that how all of this came to fruition in your own case? That's correct. That's correct. So I was merely defending against a foreclosure action in my state case. And the only thing that I was trying to do when this was at the state level was defend against a foreclosure and simply uh, make the affirmative claim that they had not proved proper chain of title and they did not have the standing nor the right to foreclose based on the documents that they had produced. So it, uh, when we, when I was in federal court, what I was doing is turning the tables around and affirmatively suing the people that were involved in the state case, but there were only two of them in the state case, i.e. Chase Bank and the trust. I additionally added LPS Black Knight because of the consent judgment and violations of that and the law firms involved for the material violations and withholding of 
parties have the material to the case that they should have disclosed, especially under the consent judgment. Now, are you still, my understanding is you're still in your home? That is correct. As the battle continues? And I think that's also something that procedurally um, would interest a lot of borrowers. And in other words, in your state case, um, just so everyone's clear on this, was there, it sounds like there was a final ruling that you then took up on appeal. Um, or maybe the appeal that you've done was related to your federal matter only to the Seventh Circuit. But was there a final judgment in your state case where essentially a foreclosure was going to be executed and then you filed the federal case? Or let, let borrowers kind of know how you navigated that terrain. Because that, that's a, I mean, from a legal point of view, it's, it's fascinating how you've maneuvered here. And I, I think it would help the borrowers to know something about that. Sure, and that's a very good point because a lot of people, uh, and, and I'm glad you backed me up on that because a lot of people get uh, confused as to some of the, uh, the, the procedures that, that happened and how I'm still in my home after nine years. Uh, what had happened was, yes, at the uh, trial court level, in uh, the foreclosure process actually started in 2009 with my home. Uh, the bank withdrew the the servicer, I should say, Chase Bank and the trust withdrew the uh, foreclosure for two and a half years from 2010 through roughly uh, late 2012. And that was because, as we all know, the banks were going through the national mortgage settlement and everything was being reviewed and that froze them up. So I got a two and a half year reprieve. Uh, until roughly 2013, when they reinstituted foreclosure, uh, the trial court granted them uh, a judgment of foreclosure, and I appealed that up to the Indiana Supreme Court. Now, it, I filed my federal case when the Indiana Supreme Court in uh, uh, 2013 denied hearing my case that time I had found out about LPS Black Knight's uh, assignments, robo-signed assignments, and I simply filed a federal case. And that stopped up Nelson Frankenberger and Chase Bank from pursuing the enforcement of the foreclosure judgment that they've held for all these years. And as I've said, even as I uh, pointed out to the federal court, they've held on to and had this judgment of foreclosure since 2013, the only reason they have not acted upon it has been their fear that if they proceed with the foreclosure on my home and uh, I get my nails in them in this case, which I will, they're going to be upping their own damages. If they, in, in other words, obviously, if they move to actually remove me from the home and actually foreclose on it, knowing that I know that the documents are forged, they're just increasing their own damages. And that's why they haven't moved forward. So just so I right, I was just going to say, just to clarify, you didn't actually get a court-ordered stay when you filed the federal lawsuit, but it sounds like your pleadings and your intention were both so substantial that to some extent Chase backed off. And since then, 
they've been trying to mitigate their damages by holding holding off. Is that is that pretty much how this has transpired procedure transpired procedurally? Correct. And I have had at this point, I uh, I think I can count probably four different times where uh, Nelson and Frankenberger has filed for a sheriff sale on the home and then withdrawn it. And in each instance, it's been because either I have filed a uh, case and forced the matter and they back down, uh, or in the instance when the national mortgage settlement has gone on, uh, one of the state regulators took action and they backed off. So it's kind of been a situation where <laughs> of dealing with a giant cockroach that keeps uh, popping out of its hole to see if your flashlight still has batteries and can shine the light on it. And if it does, it crawls back in its hole. So I guess that's the best analogy. So it's been this game of uh, they'll pop out, file the share of sales and back off when I, when I take an action or somebody else takes action. Well, unfortunately, I think that your metaphor there is 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 all too uh, is all too accurate. Um, to some extent, we are dealing with large cockroaches when we're uh, we're fi- we're fighting these cases. Uh, so, <laughs> it, it would also be helpful. Um, there's there's a couple of of important threads that I wanted to pull pull out in our limited time here. One is your appeal to the Supreme Court, but um, I think we can go back to that in a bit. I wanted to address first, so I, I, I know that this is important terrain for us to cover. You've been able to use for your request, I believe you've done in this federal lawsuit, and then you've, you've kind of seen how that could play out for other borrowers. It would, it would be very helpful if you would tell the listeners about that, more, more details addressing that. Yeah, absolutely, and let's get right into it because I know we're burning up time here. And now, actually, this is fairly recent. Uh, I went through the uh, the federal court, and they basically have ruled that Rooker Feldman prevented uh, them from having jurisdiction to hear my case. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals upheld that ruling, and I have uh, gone ahead and done a writ of cert to the Supreme Court. Uh, seeking a review of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruling. But the FOIA situation is actually fairly recent. That's been in the last 60 days here. Uh, After I got the ruling recently from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and then, of course, did my writ of cert, uh, Nelson Frankenberger had filed uh, within the last uh, 90 days another sheriff sale on my home. And, I, you know, at that point, I pretty much had it. What I did was because LPS Black Knight was covered by a 2013 consent judgment, and this again was signed off on by the 50 state attorney generals, each in their individual capacity, uh, what was unique about this consent judgment is that it did give an, uh, the right for consumers for a private cause of action. And more importantly, the consent judgment said that quarterly quarterly reports would be filed with the various state AGs uh, through 2018 to cover what LPS Black Knight was doing to mitigate the robo-signing and uh, forgery activities. So I sent an FOIA request 
within the last 90 days to the state attorney general here in Indiana. And I said, listen, I want all the documents as it relates to the quarterly reports that you have gotten from LPS Black Knight. And I want all the information as well in relation to what you base the litigation on with this consent judgment. In other words, I use the FOIA as a way to call out the attorney general because, as we've seen, in a lot of these cases, whether it's LPS Black Knight or Aquin or a lot of the other bad actors here, the AGs or the other regulatory agencies will accept a fine or some other type of monetary penalty, and that'll be the end of that. They won't follow up on this, and they don't expect anyone to start digging. Well, I started digging. I sent the FOIA request under the Indiana Public Records Act, and uh, as I said, I requested this documentation. The Indiana Attorney General responded to my FOIA request and basically told me that everything that I had requested was in some manner privileged. The only thing they were willing to disclose was the actual consent judgment itself, which consisted of 12 pages, and, they, and then they said, oh, by the way, we have seven cover pages, basically seven uh, facts cover pages to these quarterly reports, but that's all we can give you, which was uh, a large smoking gun. Uh, I sent the attorney general a letter, uh, long and short of it, expressing my displeasure with the fact that they were sitting on their behinds and not enforcing their consent judgment. I pointed out the fact that Nelson and Frankenberger and LPS Black Knight were violating the consent judgment and they were doing nothing. And that I was turning over a copy of the letter that I just, that I was writing them to the media and to everybody else that would be interested in it. Now I did this two days before the scheduled sheriff sale. Within five hours of me faxing the uh, letter to the Indiana Attorney General based on my FOIA request, five hours later, the sheriff came knocking on my door with a cancellation of the sheriff's sale. That's very powerful. I And again, I think it, it's somewhat a unique circumstance with the LPS Black Knight situation, because again, this this involved all 50 state attorney generals, and it's got some very specific clauses to it. But that is just an example of there are multiple other, as as you're well aware of, state attorney general actions and consent judgments and enforcement actions that are out there, and it's it would appear that it's much easier to argue and issue a FOIA request to a state agency and potentially get useful information out of them and to press the state AGs as to what actions they're taking than obviously you could do with the federal government because the federal government has put up a uh, a large uh, concrete wall and have steadfastly refused to release any information. Oh, so did in you, uh, did you issue a did you issue a request with the federal government related to these issues? I did go through the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and I 
issued a long complaint to them uh, a number of years ago, but I got a response that I think most people have gotten in uh, their individual cases, which is when you complain to the CFPB, they simply write back and said, your matter is in litigation. We can't comment or take any action on it. Have a nice day. That is very typical, but that's their general policy. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's when you're dealing with the federal government, you're not getting very far on these uh, on these requests for these actions. But I think going through the state government uh, to get access to information is much more speedy and much more potentially fruitful in terms of getting access to this information, because I think, Charles, you'd agree, you're going to find with 50 different states or with state uh, judges, if you have to go in and claim a violation of FOIA or the, ver- the various states' uh, public records acts, if you're if you're going under those acts and requesting information and it's being unreasonably withheld, you're going to find a lot more sympathetic ear with a state court judge or a uh, local judge who is looking at this, going, "Wait a minute, why aren't they releasing this information? You can't just refuse." to release this information. And, and, and again, using my case as an example, how in the world can you claim privilege on a quarterly report that is supposed to cover how somebody is complying with the consent judgment terms to protect the public from somebody that's been robo-signing and forging documents? What's privileged about that? There, there is nothing privileged about that. Uh, and what it, they may claim as privileged can easily be, uh, as you know, blocked out or, you know, pertinent parts blocked out, but you can't withhold every single aspect of a case and say, hey, it's all privileged. Uh, I don't think many state court judges are going to go for that. And I think you're also right in something else. You either stated or implied this earlier that essentially with the discovery request within the the civil arena itself, these kinds of privilege uh, objections do come up. And I do think judges are being too accommodating, frankly. Um, I've talked many times on this show about institutional bias. It's a reality that we can't just finesse or pretend away. And what you're describing is an excellent example of that. But I think you are showing a way forward for a lot of listeners around the country right now where if if they're getting stymied in their individual discovery, bringing these state FOIA requests, I can see how attorneys general's offices would feel compelled at some level to respond. And when they don't respond properly, the way that you handled it, I think is showing how they how they can be pushed to respond. No, and very quickly, I think you raised a couple of important points there, and I and I want to reiterate that. Let's not kid ourselves here. I, I don't like hearing euphemisms like robo signing when we're talking about forgery, nor do I like to hear about how judges are confused or have institutional bias. Let's face it; some of these judges are flatly refusing to apply the law, they're abdicating the responsibility as judges simply because they don't want their dockets clogged with these cases. They don't want to hear about it. They are actively 
blocking people from having access to the courts, and it's ridiculous. So, you know, that's number one. Number two, yes, I think that the court of public opinion, as I mentioned in the article today, is much more powerful in some cases than actually going through the court system. You may get a settlement or a resolution on your case by simply going, getting the media or the public involved and embarrassing the hell or <laughs> forcing, excuse my, my language here, but embarrassing the public institutions, the AG's office, or the courts through the media or other sources to take action and reach a settlement because they don't want the public spotlight on Oh, I, I see exactly what you're saying with that. I mean, that's another angle you've played here. You you mentioned bringing some of this to the media and the brief time we have here. What what media did you use? I don't mean like what station or – but just what type of media did you use to bring more attention to this, which clearly played a critical role in getting your sale postponed most recently? What What did you do there? Charles, all I had to do was to intimate to the attorney general – that I would bring this to the media. I have not even begun yet, but I'm starting to, uh, and this isn't even long and short of it. I'm not even done with the FOIA action I've taken on this. I'm going to have to go to the court to seek a release of the information they're refusing to give out in violation of the public records act. And I will, but I'm not near done, but all it took was the intimation that I would get the media involved and other folks involved. Yeah, that makes it even more powerful. I'd, I'd like to have you on uh, again, Eric, uh, if you'd like to come on the show, to talk about the media angle and to get in some more details on this. And then we could explore, you know, even more fully how we, we, we would apply this to borrowers specifically around the country. Uh, absolutely. I'd love to do it. And I- Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultation. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.